0: This is a Bloomberg Radio Special, selecting the next Supreme Court Justice. I'm David Weston. Well, President Trump has made it official, nominating Amy Coney Barrett to replace the late Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg on the high court. She
1: is a woman of unparalleled achievement, towering intellect, sterling credentials, and unyielding loyalty to the Constitution. Judge Amy Coney Barrett.
0: It's a pick that has the potential to shift the balance of the Supreme Court for decades to come. Over the next hour, we'll look at the implications, discuss the politics around the pick, and examine Judge Barrett's record, from her start as a clerk for Justice Antonin Scalia to her time on the bench of the Seventh Circuit Court of Appeals. But first, let's start with some initial reaction from our Bloomberg News and Bloomberg Law Supreme Court reporters, Greg Storr and Kimberly Strawbridge Robinson. So, Greg, I'll start with you. This hardly came as a surprise. People basically were predicting it.
1: Yeah, this is a name that we were all talking about for days. It's a name that Donald Trump told us he was very seriously considering. And it's somebody who he interviewed before he selected Brett Kavanaugh for the last opening.
2: Yeah, and
0: at the same time, Kimberly, it's important these days to know something about your nominee and how they're likely to rule. This nominee is an academic. She's written a fair amount. She said sort of how she approaches judging. And so they kind of know her approach, don't they?
2: they do you know, when she was a law professor at Notre Dame she was there for a number of years she really focused on originalism and statutory construction and really in the mold of her former boss justice Scalia and on the 7th circuit while she hasn't been there that long just since October of 2017 that has been her record on the court following those judicial ideologies
0: yeah when you hear things like originalism which certainly is something that justice Scalia espoused uh, you automatically almost think about Roe against Wade and abortion don't you Greg because uh, that's something that the conservatives have been saying for some time I don't see the the right to have an abortion in the constitution yeah
1: do. it really hard to square Roe v. Wade with the way that conservatives apply originalism. And so, yes, that, that is almost an implicit criticism of the way that decision was made. And in Amy Coney Barrett's case, we also have some things she has said about abortion in law review articles where she's made clear she has a personal objection to abortion and, and sees it as being immoral. So you combine those two things, and certainly one would expect she's going to be very skeptical if Roe v. Wade comes before the court.
0: Well, Kimberly, that takes us almost automatically to the confirmation hearing when she was nominated to go on the Court of Appeals, where you had that now famous exchange with Diane Feinstein, the senator from California, who pointed to her religion and then actually took a fair amount of criticism for raising religion as an issue.
2: Well, that's right, and uh, Senator Feinstein was really asking about one of those many articles that Greg mentioned that Amy Coney Barrett wrote when she was an academic, which argued that Catholic judges should recuse themselves from death penalty cases, which, of course, has implications for the abortion. She said that wouldn't be uh, what she does when she's sitting on a federal court, Uh, but it did bring up this controversy where Diane Feinstein said that the dogma lived loudly within Amy Coney Barrett, and it really made her her sort of a hero for religious conservatives.
0: It'll be interesting to see if this comes up, how it comes up in confirmation hearings, Greg, and those will be apparently happening fairly soon if the president of the United States has his way. At the same time, if you look at her record, it is a pretty stellar record. Number one in her class at Notre Dame Law School, editor of the law review, clerk in the Supreme Court, and before that for a prestigious court of appeals judge. It's pretty hard to say she's not qualified for the job.
1: Yeah, this isn't going to be a fight over qualifications or credentials. There's no question she has those, and one will expect that she will present herself very well in terms of her knowledge of the law and her ability to do the job. It'll really be about the ideology and uh, perhaps any hidden motivations Democrats think she has and, and what she would do to the Supreme Court at this time when we're about to have a presidential election.
0: Kimberly, it strikes me there's something a little bit artificial when we have a nomination to the Supreme Court. We focus on one individual. They are one of nine. And we don't want to underestimate the amount of collegiality or lack of collegiality because some justices have outside influence because they get along well with others and can persuade others. Others are somewhat of loners. Do we know anything about her style on the Seventh Circuit?
2: I think we can look at her confirmation hearing for the Seventh Circuit to um, see the kind of support that she got from the people that she worked with. All of the law professors at Notre Dame backed her nomination to the court, and she was hugely popular among her students as well. So she does seem like somebody who would fit into that collegiality at the Supreme Court. But it's famously been said that a new justice always changes the court, and of course, that's going to be true in her case as well.
0: Greg, we are in Bloomberg, so we should talk about what we think this might mean or not mean for the economy. Economy and for business, what would business expect out of a justice Barrett?
1: Well, first of all, business would care a lot about our views on the Affordable Care Act. The court's going to hear arguments a week after the election. Depending on how that falls out, she may or may not participate in that case. She was critical of Chief Justice Roberts' reasoning back when he cast the key vote to uphold the law in 2012. Not exactly the same issue before the court now, but related. And then, you know, she hasn't, because she's not on the D.C. circuit, which handles so much of the regulatory issues, she hasn't had as much regulatory work as, say, Brett Kavanaugh did when he joined the Supreme Court. But one would imagine that her instincts would be with people like Neil Gorsuch and, and Brett Kavanaugh to be skeptical of agency authority. That could mean scaling back some regulations.
0: You talk about Justice Kavanaugh and scaling back regulation, and, and Kimberly, it brings you back to some challenges to the delegation doctrine, frankly. We saw a little bit of a hint of it perhaps in the CFPB decision last term, where they said basically the president should have the right to fire when it's just one person who heads an agency. Does this... Tell us anything about the likelihood that the Supreme Court may say, you know what, agencies should be more subject to the president.
2: We really don't know. She doesn't have a very strong record on that, uh, just given where she sits in the federal bench. But the Supreme Court is considering a similar case uh, this term where the timing looks right for a Trump nominee to be seated on the court. So we could get our first indications whenever they hear oral argument how she thinks about this issue. Many
0: thanks now to Bloomberg News Supreme Court reporter Greg Storr and Bloomberg Law Supreme Court reporter Kimberly Strawbridge-Robinson for more on the judge and the possible influence she could have on the high court, welcome Leah Littman, professor of constitutional law at the University of Michigan. So, Professor, thank you so much for joining us. Let's start out first with maybe a disclaimer. I mean, you have served on the court as a clerk for Justice Kennedy. Maybe we should be a little cautious about how much we can predict about someone when they come to Supreme Court justice, because often they're not what we thought they would be.
3: I think that's right. Although I do think that the parties, and in particular the Republican Party, have gotten a little bit better at selecting justices whose votes they can be more confident
4: in. Yeah,
0: fair enough. They put a lot of work into that, actually. She did clerk for uh, Justice Scalia, uh, and uh, obviously he was an originalist, really believing you got to go back to the original language. She also, as I understand it, as an academic for some 15 years at Notre Dame Law School, wrote on the subject, and she embraces that doctrine. Explain how that could affect how she rules at the Supreme Court.
3: So, under the doctrine of originalism, you're supposed to interpret the Constitution as it was originally understood when it was ratified. Um so using that methodology, Professor Barrett, or when she was Professor Barrett authored law review articles explaining that under An originalist theory of the Constitution, decisions like Brown versus Board of Education, which held that segregation in public education is unconstitutional, might be wrongly decided. She also suggested that Social Security, as we know it, is unconstitutional and that the admission of the state of West Virginia was illegal as well. However, her scholarship was grappling with this question about what do you— do when originalism points in one direction and the Supreme Court's cases point in another. And she did not purport to say what a judge should do under those circumstances. Instead, she was writing about how conscientious legislators should behave when they think that the original meaning of the Constitution points in one direction and Supreme Court precedent in another. So we don't really know how she will be in cases where... The original public meaning and her assessment of the Constitution points in one direction, and the Supreme Court's cases point in another. The president's nominees to date have really taken two approaches to that question. You have Justice Gorsuch on the one hand. He largely thinks that when the Supreme Court got it wrong, you should just abandon a case, even if the Supreme Court has resolved it the other way. Justice Kavanaugh, for his part, has not gone as far as Justice Gorsuch as far as abandoning the Supreme Court's prior cases.
0: So this is a terribly important point. We call it stare decisis, right, which is basically we should follow precedent. We don't turn on a dime in the Supreme Court, and particularly perhaps when it comes to the Constitution. We saw Chief Justice Roberts just this last term embrace that in the abortion case. Do we have a sense of how that might cut on the abortion issue? A lot of people talk about Amy Coney Barrett in connection with abortion.
3: We don't have any great indication based on Judge Barrett or Professor Barrett's writings, either as a scholar or as a judge. But I would say the most important indication that we have is the fact that the president promised to appoint nominees who would overturn Roe v.ersus Wade, the fact that Senator Josh Hawley of Missouri said he would only vote for nominees who would overturn Roe v.ersus Wade, and the fact that Senator Hawley has indicated that Judge Barrett passes his test, and the fact that the president nominated her suggests they believe, and they have been told by people who know her, that she would vote to overturn Roe. Another great indication about how she might vote in those cases is the fact that both of the president's nominees just last term in the Louisiana abortion case that you mentioned voted to overturn the court's most recent abortion case, Whole Woman's Health versus said That was the decision, of course, that invalidated the admitting privileges requirement when Texas enacted it, and both Justice Gorsuch and Justice Kavanaugh would have overturned that decision and allowed Louisiana to enact an admitting privileges requirement.
0: Yeah, and to show just how powerful it is, Chief Justice Roberts, as I recall, said, look, at, I voted in the dissent on the prior case, so I think it's wrong and decided, but I'm still going to enforce it because it's the law.
3: Exactly. And Chief Justice Roberts is a justice who believes that stare decisis and principles of respect for precedent should occasionally carry the day. However, the president's two most recent nominees have been more inclined to read the precedent and just based on that record. And again, people like Senator Hawley's faith in Judge Tony Barrett, that suggests that she might be more in the mold of a Justice Kavanaugh or Justice Gorsuch than the chief justice.
0: One of the cases that is scheduled at least right now to be argued is the Affordable Care Act case coming back up again, that as we know, some of the conservatives were disappointed with Chief Justice Roberts' first time around. As I understand it, Professor, when she was Professor Barrett, has actually been critical of what Chief Justice Roberts said in that case.
3: Uh, yes. Although this version of the Affordable Care Act case is a little bit wonkier because it really involves a two-step challenge, and the first argument in the case is whether the 2017 amendments to the Affordable Care Act by the Republican Congress strengthened the individual mandate and rendered it unconstitutional, and if the mandate is, in fact, unconstitutional, whether the rest of the Affordable Care Act must fall as well. Those arguments are, to put it mildly, pretty legally outlandish. And so even if she disagrees with the chief justice's vote in the 2012 decision that upheld the constitutionality of the Mm -hmm. Affordable Care Act, that doesn't necessarily mean she would vote with the challengers in this Mm -hmm. case, although the fate of the Affordable Care Act certainly did become a lot more precarious Mm -hmm. on Justice Ginsburg's passing, Mm -hmm. because to date, Every judge who has been appointed by a Republican president has endorsed the challenger's arguments, finding that the Affordable Care Act, as amended, is unconstitutional, and that some of the other provisions in the Affordable Care Act have to fall together with that, including its protections for people with preexisting conditions.
0: Okay. Many thanks. Really appreciate your being with us. That's Leah Littman. She's professor of constitutional law at the University of Michigan. Sources tell us President Trump views the judge as a smart, hard-nosed conservative who can have a long tenure on the high court. But how will her legal views shape the court's approach to the economy and to business? Joining us now to help answer that question is Ilan Werman. He is associate professor at the Sandra Day O'Connor College of Law at Arizona State University. Professor Werman specializes in administrative and constitutional law. So welcome, professor. It's great to have you here. We tend to think about the Supreme Court, at least the popular culture, in terms of abortion and gun control. But there are a lot of things the court does that really affect business as well. Do we have any sense of how a Judge Barrett becoming a Justice Barrett might affect business?
5: This is a hot topic sort of among lawyer circles and legal circles, but also a bit among the business community is the role of the administrative state, the role of the administrative state in our constitutional system and its impact on, on businesses. Because, you know, in the traditional separation of powers model, Congress makes the law, the president executes the law, and the courts adjudicate the law, and businesses kind of know where to go. If you want a law passed, you go to Congress, right? If you, you're you in trouble, you go to the courts and so on. But today, more and more administrative agencies make the regulations, right, that bind businesses and that affect the business community that tell businesses what they can and can't do, these regulations are made pursuant to really, really broad delegations of power from Congress. You know, Congress likes to pass statutes like, you know, there shall be clean air, and it leaves it up to the agencies to figure out, well, who has to pollute less and, you know, the costs uh, on businesses. And so we may see uh, some revival of some older doctrines, like the non-delegation doctrine and other doctrines to try to rein in the, de- the administrative state. And-, and this has the potential to be uh, a more business-friendly uh, environment as-, as a result of
0: So when you talk about the administrative state, you're talking, I think, largely about some of what we call the independent agencies, the FCC, the FTC, the SEC, that are appointed by uh, political people, but actually they have some tenure beyond that.
5: That's right, and it's not just, though, these independent agencies, these so-called independent commissions. What makes them independent is that they're somewhat insulated from the president's ability to fire them. They're insulated by what's called for-cause-removal provisions. But also, you know, executive branch agencies that, that aren't protected that way, the Environmental Protection Agency, uh, OSHA, the Occupational Safety and Health Administration under the Department of Labor. You know, the, the, these can be sub-cabinet departments where, in theory, there's a direct line of control to the president, but for a large measure, they operate pretty autonomously. You you know, pursuant to these broad authorities that, that Congress gives the, the agencies. But yes, but independent agencies are sort of the biggest culprit, what people tend to think about, FTC, SEC, as you say, but it's also other, you know, other agencies as well that aren't technically independent, but, but they still exercise a lot of autonomous power.
4: Given
0: how large the country's gotten, the commerce has gotten, business has gotten, do we have any alternative but to delegate some of this? The president himself can't administer every one of these laws.
5: You know, the the society has gotten more complex. Congress doesn't have the capacity uh, and the attention span, (laughs) even if it had the desire, you know, to to legislate in more detail. So maybe a delegation of power is inevitable. But that doesn't mean there aren't, you know, other options and potentially business-friendly options. You know, the RAINS Act is is an example. Uh, Rand Paul introduces it, I think, every year. The RAINS Act basically would say, look, for important and, and economically impactful regulations, the agency can go ahead and propose the regulation, go through the process, promulgate the regulation, but before it actually takes effect, before it has the force and effect of actual law, Congress has to vote on it.
0: So Judge Barrett has been on the Seventh Circuit Court of Appeals. Before that, she was 15 years at Notre Dame Law School on the faculty there. Do we have any indication from her writings, her rulings or her writings, how she might come down on this issue?
5: I really can't say. I mean, as a general, uh, you know, uh, an an originalist, someone who takes the founder's intention seriously, you know, one can assume that you'll have the same uh, or similar views, at least, uh, uh, to Justice Gorsuch and Justice Kavanaugh and Justice Thomas and so on. But, you know, I consider myself an originalist, and I have a—and I write a lot on the non-delegation doctrine, and I have very quirky views, you know. Um, My view of of what Congress is allowed to delegate is actually much more capacious than Justice Thomas's view. So there is an intra-originalist disagreement over the scope of the non-delegation delegation doctrine over just how limited Congress has to be. And just where, you know, the new justice will fall, um, you know, is yet to be determined.
0: Are there possible ramifications to go even beyond delegation or non-delegation to the scope of the Commerce Clause? Because we saw Chief Justice Roberts, even as he voted to uphold the Affordable Care Act based on the tax point, did a lot of dictum, I thought, at least saying, you know what, I'm not sure the Commerce Clause goes that broadly, which would be a very big departure from where the Supreme Court has been.
5: Yeah, I think that's right. Um, I, I think we already have had the votes before. As you say, under the Affordable Care Act case, the Supreme Court basically said in, in the five, five to four part of its opinion that it would violate the Commerce Clause to force people into commerce. But even then, you know, forcing people into commerce uh, is pretty narrow. I mean, it's not like Congress does something like the individual mandate that often, right? The reality is today, almost everything affects commerce. Every, you know, All economic activity in the states affect interstate commerce somehow. And I find it very unlikely that the Supreme Court is going to reconsider those cases.
0: Fascinating. This is really, truly helpful. Thank you so much to Professor Elon Werman. He is from Arizona State. The pick of Barrett is likely to energize conservatives and liberals alike, just over five weeks before Americans go to the polls. Barrett is only 48 years old. She also survived a tough confirmation fight in 2017 with a vote that fell largely along party lines. How will it shape up this time? Joining us to discuss is Bloomberg political contributors Jeannie Zeno and Rick Davis. Jeannie is professor of political science at Iona College, and Rick is former campaign manager for the late John McCain. So welcome to both of you here. Jeannie, let me start with you. I mean, as a practical matter, there may be a lot of heat and light here, but is there any question about how this is going to come out as a practical matter?
6: As a practical matter, I don't think so. I think it is pretty clear that we are going to see not just a nomination, but a a vote on a confirmation and barring, you know, something that comes up, which is unlikely because this is somebody who has been vetted. We are going to see a candidate get the
0: vote on the floor. So the last time we had one of these, Rick, we remember Justice Kavanaugh. Now Justice Kavanaugh, then Judge Kavanaugh. There was a lot of electricity in that, in that hearing from both sides. You remember how Lindsey Graham really went after the Democrats at one point. Uh, are the Republicans going to be really going after the Democrats, or given the fact that they have the votes, do they sort of lay low?
4: Well, oh, I think that they're going to lay low. They've already set the stage. Mitch McConnell, the leader of the Senate caucus of Republicans, has already said that much to do about nothing, uh, this president gets to make his pick, and the Senate has already counted the votes, and he's got the votes to pass this. So he's going to play this out as, as a foregone conclusion and try to actually make the Democrats look like they're making much to do about nothing.
0: One of the things that struck me in looking at the membership on the Judiciary Committee is you've got some senators up for reelections, and some of them not cl- clear how it's going to come out I mean Lindsey Graham's the chair he certainly said how he's going to come out but what about Tom Tillerson even more important maybe Joni Ernst from Iowa Rick does she have to be a little careful about how she plays this
4: You know, look, I think all of them do. I mean, I wouldn't exclude Lindsey Graham from the list of people who have to pay attention to the politics of this. He was in pretty bad shape before Kavanaugh and attributes the Kavanaugh uh, defense to helping him get through the primary and rebuild his uh, support amongst the base. So I think that uh, uh, as many people as you have for you for passing a conservative judge, I think you have an equal amount these days who are going to be excited about the fact that you ramrodded the process through. So even though it's not going to be a decision of whether you're going to win or lose on the ballot, but the fact that it's being forced into... Uh, decision before Election Day is going to cause some trouble for the Tillises and the Ernsts who have close races in states that uh, intensity of vote is going to make the difference.
0: So, Jeannie, one of the things that strikes me is given how little time we have before the election, who occupies the airwaves really counts a fair amount. This will really occupy the airwaves to some extent, some of the attention of the electorate. Certainly, President Trump likes it that way from his point of view for his base. But what about Kamala Harris? She's on this committee, too, and she's been pretty effective as a prosecutor, as it were, in these hearings before.
6: Yeah, absolutely. We're going to see an awful lot of, of Kamala Harris uh, during this, this period. I think, to your point, the president is quite happy that the focus has changed from something like COVID, that he doesn't do well in the polls on, to something like this, which he feels strongly. And the data seems to support this, does energize his base. But I think one of the real interesting questions here when we're talking about somebody like a Kamala Harris or a Cory Booker, who's also on the committee, or, you know, an an Amy Klobuchar, is... Is this going to, for the first time maybe since the early 70s, really energize the left as well? Um, for a long time, because it was Republicans who felt like they were losing as a result of these judiciary picks and, and the makeup of the Supreme Court, they were the ones that were so focused on the makeup and it, voting on this type of issue. But we're seeing just a lot of energy on the left, um, you know, $90 million raised in the you know, 24-hour period after Ruth Bader Ginsburg passed. So I do think there is a question as to who this energizes, and I'm not sure we're going to know the answer to that until we see turnout in the election.
0: Well, Rick, you've managed these campaigns, including for president on behalf of John McCain. Is this something that's big enough that could actually change the order of preference in terms of what people are concerned about? Before this, we thought we knew pretty much it's the economy and it's coronavirus, maybe some health care. Could this really elevate this issue, a social values issue, up the ladder?
4: You know, it's got a lot of competition, as you point out. COVID and the economy have dominated the political scene since March, and social unrest that's happening all around the country, and most notably even this week in Louisville, has been the issue that has really sprung into this presidential campaign. Uh, mostly, the uh, Supreme Court politics revolve around the activists and the folks who really follow this on a partisan basis. So the likelihood that this is going to somehow change swing voters' minds as to how this is conducted is probably unlikely. I would say as a campaign manager, I hated things like this, because if I were running the Trump campaign and I had to make up a lot of ground, I would look at this issue as saying, this is not what's going to get me swing voters. And I'm now going to freeze the election for at least a week after I, nominate this person to all the media attention that's going to go on them instead of my candidate. And so I must say, freezing an election in the first week of October is not my idea of a good strategy.
0: Well, that's fascinating. So, so Jeannie, give me a sense. How does Senator McSally out in Arizona feel about this right now? Or for that matter, Joni Ernst, we just talked about. We have some Republicans who are, as it were, on the bubble
2: here.
6: Yeah, absolutely. And, of course, the Arizona race you mentioned is really, really critical, because depending on the timing—I mean, we know there will be a nomination and a confirmation hearing. We don't know the timing of any of this yet, and depending on the timing, if we do see this drag on after the election and Kelly wins out in Arizona— he could be in Congress and, and have a vote on this if it gets to the floor, which I assume it will. So, you know, this there's a lot of uncertainty here. And, you know, you mentioned some of these Republican senators who are on the cusp, whether it's Joni Ernst or, or McSally, who are, you know, quote-unquote fighting for their lives to a certain extent. I think it raises an issue for many of these senators, which is that they also need to be home campaigning and not necessarily on this issue. And I think Rick just raised a really good point about the campaign. I think this is one reason you see the Democrats and you see Joe Biden trying to tie this so directly to health care, because not only does the court have the health care case and the Obamacare case on November 10th, but that is also something that helped Democrats win the election in 2018 and take the House. And knowing what Rick said, they want to tie the importance of this nomination to the idea, not just of something like a social issue like abortion, but something that hits people even more directly. And we've seen it have an impact at the ballot box, and that's health care. And so they're trying to put the fear of God in people that this could make something like, you know, pre-existing conditions and impact the Affordable Care Act
4: yeah and i would I would just extend on that Jeannie that Amy uh, Coney Barrett is a big critic of ACA. she has been hostile to it throughout her career and and the Republicans will make this a big deal that that this is their chance to use the court to undermine ACA and a lot of suburban voters have been supportive of ACA and so this is going to cut both ways and and so it's going to be interesting to see how you know these swing voters react to this kind of uh, news
0: not only critics, she actually specifically criticized Chief Justice Roberts for his ruling in the ACA case. So it really sort of signals where she might well come out in this new challenge for, from the administration. At the same time, Rick, is this a little too fancy for voters just to get from the Supreme Court to the affordable care, I think, health care? I saw that Joe Biden's campaign did that just almost immediately, within 24 hours. That's where they were going with it after the yeah. announcement of Ruth Bader Ginsburg's <laughs> if, if they death.
4: make this a placeholder for a debate on health care, they're going to be very happy at the Biden campaign, right? And so nobody's Nobody is trying to make a case that somehow the selection of a judge is going to somehow uh, on its own be an issue, but their, their views on ACA, as you just pointed out, are pretty clear and, and undeniable. And so the Republicans will lean in and say, this is our chance to get rid of ACA. We haven't been able to do it legislatively, but we can do it you know, through the court. In North Carolina, Donald Trump was out talking about ACA and his new plan, uh, once it's gotten rid of, that he'll implement. So you can tell both sides are girding for the emergence of healthcare as being the sort of October surprise issue.
0: Finally, Jeannie, I wonder if in an election already people were pretty motivated on The one thing this ensures is people are going to vote, whether it's by showing up or by mail-in. This is going to motivate, as I say, both conservatives and liberals potentially to make sure they cast a vote.
6: Yeah, I I think, you know, (laughs) there's so many issues on the table right now that are so important to people. We're in the midst of a pandemic. Obviously, you've got all the racial and social unrest. You've got questions about the, you know, the sanctity of your vote when you go in. And then, of course, you, you top it off with a Supreme Court, potentially the president having his third pick of the Supreme Court. And I think it really does energize people on both sides. I go back to the fact that because we have an electoral college, it's really the moderate and independent voter in the middle that matters. And I think where they come down and if this motivates them is the real yeah. question to watch in places like Florida yeah. and North Carolina and Wisconsin and, and Michigan.
0: The, and the polls suggest there aren't very many of those undecideds <laughs> left. Okay, many thanks now to Bloomberg political contributors Jeannie Zeno and Rick Davis. This is a Bloomberg Radio special, selecting the next Supreme Court justice. Stay tuned to Bloomberg Radio in the days and weeks ahead for the latest on the fight to confirm Judge Amy Coney Barrett to the high court. Plus, the latest on the race for the White House, including the first presidential debate this Tuesday night, will bring you live coverage and analysis starting at 8.30 Wall Street time on both Bloomberg Radio and television. Thanks for listening. I'm David Weston, and this is Bloomberg.